Father, we pray this morning in the midst of heat and distraction that uh, you would give us a coolness within our soul that comes from the refreshment of your word. Would you send your Holy Spirit to animate, to open your words for us? Would your words penetrate our hearts so that we would be changed, so that we would be a people that come to reflect the glory, the beauty, the love, the mercy, the grace that is yours. Come and shape us as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A few months ago, myself and a really good buddy, Adam Keith, is here this morning. We, we got the chance to go to uh, see the Masters. You ever heard of the Masters? It's like the most prestigious golf tournament in all the world. And now Adam and I went, not because we're golfers. Anybody that knows us at all would be quite sure of that. We're not golfers at all. And I think Adam only went because he thought we were going to a NASCAR race. But Adam and I went down to the Masters to see what all the hubbub's about. And the place is amazing. The whole experience uh, really is like nothing else you've ever seen or been to. You're at this place, it's in Augusta, Georgia, it's one of the most uh, beautiful places I've ever been, this golf course, not Augusta, but there is not a blade of grass that is out of place, it's a highly controlled environment where everybody has to be on their best behavior, they have all of these rules that go along with the club, like for instance, one is you cannot bring a cell phone into the tournament which was totally shocking to us. I mean, where, where can you not bring a cell phone? You can bring a cell phone to church. You can talk on the cell phone at church, but not at the Masters, right? It's, it's like no other place we've ever been. And so we're there, and, and there's all these rules. Like uh, one rule is you can't run. And so at one point, we were kind of near the clubhouse, and this little girl sees her mom, and she starts to run to her mom. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, somebody says, hey, no running. We're like, Dang, that was a little harsh. But it's, again, it's, uh, you get the sense whenever you're there of, I'm afraid I might do something wrong here. I'm afraid I might look out of place here. And one of the things we noticed is you see these, these different interesting folks who are wearing green jackets, green blazers in the middle of the Augusta heat. And these guys look extra special and extra important. And those are the members the members of this elite country club, the Augusta National. And it's so elite, nobody knows who the, who the members actually are. And nobody knows what it takes to become a member. And in fact, you can't just become a member. Bill Gates, a number of years ago, tried to become a member, you know, the, like the richest man on the earth. And they said, not so fast. Um, your money's not old enough for here. You've got to have the pedigree. You've got to have the name. And so, Augusta National is like the most elite country club, the most exclusive country club in all the world. And, you know, the thing about a country club is that a country club is all about, uh, well, it's all not about being inclusive, right? It's about membership. It's about uh, being invited and being a part of this exclusive group of people that share a certain amount of values to one another. And even if you're a guest at a country club, you very naturally get the sense, I don't belong here. 
Well, in our passage this morning, as we look into the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we see that really their view of the church, their view of what God was after, that really that the church was to be like a country club, that it was to be a place where only the elites gathered, the spiritual elites, only the people that knew how to act and knew how to dress and knew all the lingo, that had the right pedigree, that had the right track record, only they were allowed to be a part of the inner circle of the church. If we're not careful, and oftentimes in the church this becomes the case, if we're not careful, we easily can become like this in the church. We can become exclusive. We can become ingrown. We can have a certain culture where if you don't know how to act or dress or be, the message is you don't belong here. It is very easy for the church to become not inclusive but exclusive. But C.S. Lewis once said that the church is the only organization in all of the world that exists for the sake of its non-members. At the very DNA of the church is that we exist for the benefit of those outside of us. That's what we see in our passage this morning is Jesus paints a picture of what we're to be like as his people, what the church is to be like, that is not at all the picture of a country club, but rather it's a picture of a group of people that are marked by a welcoming spirit to those who are outside of us. Uh, a group of people that seek the lost, that seek those who are not a part of our community and gathering together. An outwardly focused community that seeks to serve the lost around us. It's the essence of who we're called to be. Now, as we look at our passage here in Luke 15, you'll notice that this comes just before of what we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about the two prodigal sons. Well, these two parables that we look at this morning come just before that parable. And in fact, they all go together as a unit. And I wanted to particularly focus on these as we get prepared to send out a team to Azerbaijan. The hope is that this experience for us as a church will begin to turn our face more and more and more outwardly to our community, to those that are not a part of us. And now, as we saw last week, the setting of these parables is very important. We get that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Do you notice what Luke shows us here? He says that now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, that setting is very important because in the very next verse it says, Then Jesus told them this parable. You see, it's in that setting that Jesus begins to tell these parables. These parables are intended for this audience that he is in front of. This mixed audience that has two very different people. Now those verses tell us and paint a picture of a very common occurrence in Jesus' ministry. The first thing that it says is that the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him. This was the common reaction to Jesus by those who were sinners, those who were ostracized, those who had made a mess of their lives, those whose lives were characterized by very traditional immorality. 
those who were outcasts, those who were forgotten, those who were, who were excluded by the religious insiders, those people were drawn to Jesus. They gathered around him. They respond to him. And by ironic difference, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious professionals, the people that you would have expected to have responded to him in the way that the outsiders did, the ones who should have been waiting on the arrival of Messiah for all of Israel's history, they were repulsed by Jesus. They were turned off. They were jealous of him. He angered them. He was a threat to their, to their whole program of religion. In fact, it was their thinking that what God was most after in a religious person was somebody that knew how to keep themselves clean. Someone that knew how to keep all the rules. The one that, that knew how to stay away from all dirty things and all dirty people. The one who had the perfect track record and kept their nose clean. In their view, that is what God is after. That is the kind of people that he delights in. And so whenever Jesus came along and was pleased to associate with sinners, to have fellowship with questionable characters and outsiders and immoral people, in fact, these were the people that Jesus called his friends, the people that he spent his time with. It scandalized the Pharisees. It angered the religious professionals. And that's the picture that we see here. And it's into this setting that Jesus begins to tell these parables. The first parable that he tells us is about a man who loses a lost sheep. And Jesus starts off by saying, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. It's a way of Jesus drawing the audience into the parable, inviting them to put themselves in the situation. But here's the parable that he teaches. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. And this man, this shepherd that has a hundred sheep, he loses one. Would he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? You see, for a shepherd with a flock, every single sheep was precious. And for even one sheep to wander away, any good shepherd worth his salt would go after it. He would seek it. He would go after it until he finds it. And naturally, he would have to leave the 99 that had not wandered off in the field behind. But then in verse 5, Jesus says, And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on, its sho- on his shoulders and carries it home. It's said that whenever a sheep is separated from a flock, especially whenever sheep, as they're prone to do, get really scared, get really freaked out, they just lay down, just right there. And so as this shepherd goes after to find the sheep and he finds it, more than likely he would have to carry the sheep home. The sheep would be paralyzed with fear. But this shepherd is so overjoyed that he's found his lost sheep that he happily puts the sheep on his shoulders, carrying it near to him, and comes home with it. And whenever he gets home, in his joy... He calls up all of his friends and neighbors. And he says, hey, I found my lost sheep. This precious little sheep. You got a party with me. We got to celebrate together. Come join me. Come to my house. Let's celebrate together. His joy is so great that he wants the whole community 
to take part in it. And then Jesus, as was his practice after telling a parable, begins to do a little application for them. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, just like this, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons, righteous persons, who do not need to repent. That's a shocking statement, Jesus says to the Pharisees. There is more joy and celebration in heaven over one lost sinner that repents than over 99 righteous people that don't need to repent. You see, this kind of a statement would have been shocking to the Pharisees. Jesus is doing a little here what he would often do. He's doing a little irony, right? A little tongue-in-cheek. You see, because there are no righteous persons who do not need to repent. They don't exist. But that's exactly what the Pharisees thought that they were. In their whole understanding and teaching of religion, what God was really after was after people that were so good, they were able to keep their ducks so in a line that they didn't need to repent. They were able to keep themselves clean and avoided anything dirty and that heaven really rejoices over people like that. People that have it all together. People who never mess up. Sure, they would teach, yeah, God will, he'll accept a sinner whenever he comes home, but only begrudgingly. And he's got to earn his place in. There's no celebration in it. The celebration is over the righteous people that don't do anything wrong. But Jesus inverts their entire religious system here. He says, no, no, no. Just like the shepherd. There is more more joy and celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 people who got it all together and are convinced that they don't need to repent. See, what Jesus shows us here is that heaven loves repentance. Whenever a sinner repents, just one, all of heaven breaks out into a party. It fills heaven with joy. Just one. Whenever just one repents. Well, the next parable that he tells really goes right along with this. They're really parallels. They go together. But a little bit different in this parable. The main actor in the story is not a man, but rather it's a woman. Which Jesus, he loved to do this. In this culture, this paternalistic culture... Usually, the people that would be having this conversation would only be men. The stories in the parable in this kind of a culture, a teaching of a rabbi, it would only involve men. Women and the poor were seen as lesser in culture. But Jesus loves to just turn upside down culture. And he would oftentimes make the hero of the story or the main character a woman or a poor person. That's exactly what he does here. And he says, suppose a woman has... Ten silver coins and loses one. In the Greek, this is a drachma, which was uh, a day's wage for a common laborer. And this woman has ten of them. This, This was quite a savings account here. I mean, this would have been like her fully funded emergency fund that Dave Ramsey talks about here. She's ready to go. I mean, to be able to save up a Dave's wage was a very difficult thing in this culture. Usually, you spent the day's wage on the day's needs. But most commentators think this was probably the woman's life savings. 
And so she loses one. She loses a tenth of her wealth. And so he's, uh, he's intensified the sense of loss here. And so she loses one of her ten coins. And Jesus says, does she not light a lamp and make a careful search of the house? You know, in, in eastern homes, there typically would not be windows. And so even in the daytime, if you wanted to find something, you'd have to light a lamp. And Jesus said, I mean, this is just common sense, right? Wouldn't she light a lamp and make a careful search of the house? Wouldn't she move the couch and lift up the rug and look, every, look over every single inch until she found her lost coin? Would that not be the case? And then whenever she finds it, she's so filled with joy. In her rejoicing, she calls all of her friends up, all of her neighbors, and she says, Whoa! I found my coin that was lost, and I have it back now, safe and sound. we got to have a party. you got to come over and celebrate with me. Her joy is so great that she must share it with the community. And then Jesus, again, does a little application. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He drives the same point home to the Pharisees. God loves repentance. It fills heaven with joy. Now, I can really relate to these parables here. As Ashley will tell you, I'm oftentimes losing things. All the time, I lose something. I'm searching all over the place for it. A couple months ago, I was in my yard. Y'all know I like to do a little landscaping. And I had about 50 bales of pine straw that I'm putting out in my yard. And I'm putting them out all over the yard, and I get to the very end of the job, and I realize, oh, my wedding ring is gone. You know that feeling if you wear a ring, if you wear something all the time of it being gone? I was in a panic. I've lost it somewhere. It's somewhere in this pine straw. So I started making a careful search. I'm on hands and knees, going over every inch. But it was totally futile. I mean, it was like finding a needle in a haystack, literally. And so I'm thinking to myself, all right, what can I do? So I call my neighbor, my neighbor who always bails me out. And I call him up and I said, hey, you know anybody that's got a metal detector? He says, yeah, I got a buddy that does. So he brought it over. And I'm out there in my yard with the metal detector. And over the last little patch I got to, bam, I find it. It goes off. I find my wedding ring. And I was so overjoyed. I mean, I was so relieved. I mean, that's, that's worth a little money. And even more than that, it means a lot to me. It's got a lot of meaning to it. So I run into the house, and I say, Ashley, I found my wedding ring. And then I called up my neighbors, and I told them all, you won't believe it. I found my lost ring. And now we're going to have a party. And I'm going to invite the whole block over to my house. We're going to have a great celebration. Not really. That's a little dramatic flair there for you. But I was really happy. And I told a lot of people. And I was filled with joy. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever lost something that means a whole lot to you? You know that, you know that sense of panic? That sense of anxiety as you're looking for it? I have to find it. I have to find it. And then the sense of relief whenever you find it? The sense of joy? You just got to share it with other people? Jesus is saying, that is what God is like. To God, people are so precious to Him, even sinners. 
even rotten sinners, people that have made a complete mess of their life, they are precious to him. So precious that he goes looking. He goes searching till he finds them. And whenever they repent, whenever they turn to him, all of heaven breaks out in celebration. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and he's saying to us, that is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Don't you see? The reason I'm with these people, the reason reason that I'm acting like this, the reason I'm doing the things that are blowing your paradigms, is because this is what God is all about. Three applications these parables have for us. One is that God seeks the lost like crazy. You know, the common teaching in this day was that God will receive a returning sinner. He will receive you back if you're really sincere and if you come back and you learn all the right things to do. And you know what? That's actually a common thinking in our culture as well. And it's probably a tendency of our hearts to think for him to take me back, it's got to be all me and I've got to really convince him. But do you see the picture that we have here of the Father? He goes looking. He goes searching. He comes after us. It's what Frederick Beekner called God's wild pursuit of man. He's so captured. The heart of the Father is that the Father is bent on a wild pursuit of sinners. And as Beekner says, there's almost no place that he is unwilling to go that He will not pursue us, that He will not come after us until He finds us, until we turn and repent. In fact, the most vivid picture we have of the Father's searching after sinners is Jesus Christ Himself. He was willing to come all the way from His throne in heaven, all the way into the, into the dirt and into the brokenness of this world. He was willing to become baby, which Beekner says is a ludicrous depth of self-humiliation in his wild pursuit of man. In the person of Jesus, we see a God who is after us, who is seeking us. In fact, in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus sums up his whole ministry in this. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. It's a summary of his whole mission Jesus says, this is why I came. This is what I'm all about. I came to seek and to save sinners. There's another thing that we see. He doesn't just begrudgingly take us back. You know, sometimes we think whenever we come back in repentance, you know how it goes. If you've really blown it, you're like, all right, I've got to show him I'm serious this time. You know, like God is like, I need to teach you a lesson. I might take you back, but there's going to be a little pain involved here, you know, so you don't go do that again. Isn't that what we believe? As we come back in repentance, we're just beating ourselves up. But the picture we get here is that whenever we turn, whenever we repent and come back to Him, He's filled with joy and celebration immediately. There's no plan to restoration that He lays out. It's just immediate. He just receives us. Repentance is the nearest thing to his heart and it fills heaven with joy. Well, here's the third thing to see. This is what we are to be like. 
Now, Jesus doesn't just tell this to show what the Father is like and what He is like. He tells it to the Pharisees and He tells it to us so that we would see this is what we are to be like. You know, the, the whole shoot and match of being a Christian, of following Christ, is to learn what heaven rejoices over and join in right down here on earth. That's what the Lord's Prayer is all about, where He says, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. You see what He's showing us here? In heaven, over repentance, there's a party. There's celebration. There's joy. The lost are sought after. Jesus is saying, You, as my people, must share this value. It must drive you. We must be a people eager to seek, to run after, to pursue, to welcome sinners. It's in our DNA. Let's, let's apply this this morning a little bit more specifically to each of us. What does this mean for you this morning? Well, for those of you this morning that are not found, that are lost, that are estranged from the Lord, that have never entered into relationship with Him, this is what the, parable, the parables teach us. God is coming after you. He's pursuing you. He's inviting you to join the celebration of heaven by turning back to Him. He's coming after you. He longs for your repentance. He longs to have you with Himself. And He doesn't demand that you figure everything out, that you get the right lingo and the right dress and you know all kinds of stuff. You know, the picture here in the parables is the picture of repentance is almost the same as being found. He's eager for your repentance and will receive you. He's seeking after you. But probably for most of us, for those who have been found, here's how this applies to you. First and foremost, never stop repenting. You know, it's easy to think as believers, especially whenever you get down the road and you start to, to make some improvement and you start to grow, you start to think, all right, what God wants in me is a lifestyle in which I don't have to repent, right? Repentance is a very negative thing, something you do at the beginning of the Christian life. So the name of the game as a Christian and following Jesus is to try to live in such a way that you don't have to repent at all. Avoid repentance. These parables show us heaven loves repentance. You want to set all of heaven ablaze in a big old party? Repent constantly. Constantly be turning back to Him to receive His grace afresh. It's the nearest thing to His heart. But here's the second application for us. We must seek the lost. We've got to be a people who are eager to welcome sinners into our midst. We've got to be a people who are willing to get dirty, to go to difficult places, to pursue and go after people that have made a mess of their lives. You know, if, you, if we don't know any unbelievers, any drunks, any tax cheats, any scoundrels, if we don't know people like that, we have to ask, are we embodying Jesus on the earth? 
because he was a friend of those people. He drew those people. And so if we're not, there's a problem here. As a church, are we drawing sinners like he did? It's what we must ask of ourselves. So to get even just a little bit more practical in our application, it's very typical to think, well, this means I've got to go on some big evangelistic crusade. We've got to have some big evangelistic project that we do. We've got to go door to door. I've got to start preaching on the corner, right? Is that what you're saying, Pastor? No, it's not. Nothing wrong with those things. It's just not where real life often happens. Real ministry happens right where you are, in all the places that God has put you, in all the people that He's brought into your life, in all your spheres of influence, like your neighbors, like the people surrounding your community group. You can do it together, like your coworkers, sometimes members of your family, uh, parents, people associated with your children's recreational teams. Where are the places that He has placed you? And who might he have you to seek in those places? Let me give you three practical suggestions. First, pray. Pray for unbelievers. Pray for scoundrels. Pray for all kinds of broken and lost people. And you'll find a number of things happening. First of all, you'll find him changing your heart. You will begin to really have a heart like his for the lost. But another thing will happen. Watch out. God will start answering your prayers. You're going to start noticing all these people that he's brought into your life. It's going to make you... It's going to complicate things. It's going to make things real messy. In fact, if we were to do this, people might get the wrong idea. They might actually say things about us and talk about us if we're in the wrong places. Well, we get to have fellowship with Jesus. Because that's what it was like for him. Here's the second one. Seek to serve and to love the lost. Think of ways, be creative of ways to show love. Random acts of kindness, to take them a meal, to invite them into your home. Seek ways to show them love. And you will see God opening doors in their lives. Here's a third suggestion. Look for opportunities to share. You know, you, you really don't have to be a great communicator. You don't have to have the most polished gospel presentation. In fact, you're just having conversations and just telling people what your hope in Christ is. You know, think about the woman at the well, for instance. One of the greatest evangelists in the book of John. And she goes after her encounter with Jesus, and she tells the whole village, this guy told me everything about my life. He read my mail, and then he gave me a drink of water. That was her testimony. You know what happened? The village was reached for Christ. It's not about the cleverness of our words. It's about looking to share our hope with them. So there's a final application I want to make this morning. And it's us corporately as a people. What kind of church does this call us to be, these parables? Well, we start our, started our discussion talking about the picture of a country club. And Jesus, through these parables, gives us a very different picture of what we're to be. 
the picture that Jesus paints through his life and ministry of what's to characterize us as a church is a lot more like a hospital than a country club. Those two places are pretty different, right? Vast difference between a country club and a hospital. You know what a hospital's like? A hospital is a place for sick people. A hospital is a place that people go whenever they're broken, whenever they're torn apart, whenever their need is greater than anything that they can meet. That's what binds you together at a hospital. That's what brings people together at a hospital. But a country club, well, it's a lot different. You know, at a country club, your, your association is because of accomplishment and status, and you go to the country club so you don't have to encounter need, right? Nobody has needs there. I'm not busting on country clubs if you're a member of one. It's just that the church shouldn't be one, like one. Martin Luther said, the church is to be an infirmary for the sick and an inn for the convalescing. It's at the very core of our DNA, of what we are to be collectively as his people, that we are to welcome sinners, a place of healing, a place with people with all kinds of spiritual ailments would come and find welcome and love. May we be the embodiment of our Savior who was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let's pray together.